Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Alexandrine Boudreau-Fournier, the author of Aerial Imagination in Cuba, Stories from Above the Rooftops, published this year by Rutledge. This wonderful book is composed of what she calls ethnofiction, coming out of her own ethnographic work in Cuba, but distilling the stories, which makes for a powerful poetics and sense of narrative. There are drawings as well by José Manuel Fernández Lavado, and these do much more than illustrate. They contribute to a book that is really a creative work of art. She begins by looking up at the sky, and it's from that simple shift of the gaze that all the stories emerge. Welcome, Alex. I'm so happy to be speaking to you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very, very happy to be here as well. So so this book is a, a little bit unusual, the aerial imagination, right? On the first hand, on, first of all, um, it's an ethnography of the sky, and it's not something that we often think of as needing an ethnography. Um, second of all, there are these amazing illustrations, and I've never seen a book with with illustrations quite like this. I, I was, I'm, I'm going to have you talk a little bit about that. And then also, there's a kind of very poetic structure um, to the to the book itself. With each each uh, chapter is a kind of discrete story, and you call them ethnofictions, right? Um, so um, I'm really. I really want to hear you talk first just about how you got the idea for this book as a kind of this beautiful object that it is and with the, with the content that it has in it. Mm-hmm. Well, the idea for the book um, emerged as I was conducting uh, field work about um, sound and uh, actually like uh, um, digital music, electronic uh, music and musicians in uh, eastern Cuba and Santiago de Cuba. And uh, that was in 2015, and I was in Santiago de Cuba at the time when um, new Wi-Fi stations were uh, post- posted everywhere on the island. Uh, and in Santiago de Cuba at the time, uh, there were uh, Wi-Fi antennas uh, installed in uh, in the central park and also in a in a back alley close to a, um, a telecommunication office in Cuba. It's called Etexa. So. Um, that was huge at the time because for the first time, Cubans had access to Wi-Fi connections um, in public areas, basically. And that really changed the mood of the park and the way that people hang out in the park Um so uh, people were like uh, from one day to another going to the park to be able to connect and talk to the, their family, friends who live abroad or just uh, get access to the Internet. Um, but one thing that I noticed right away is that people were um, positioning themselves close to the antennas, like as a way to um, increase their um, the quality of their connection to the Internet and uh, to... Um, to Wi-Fi in general. And that's something that really surprised me at first and, and caught my attention because I didn't even know what a Wi-Fi antenna looked like before. Um, and that's despite the fact that, of course, in Canada, I had access to Wi-Fi um, in public spaces at university or in cafes, etc. But I, I didn't even know what it looked like. While in Cuba, Cubans were really like looking for those antennas and um, placing themselves close to the, those antennas. So what it did is kind of uh, shifted my my gaze towards um, 
uh, horizontal type of vision. So my my gaze went up, you know. So if I uh, kind of make a comparison be- before my ethnographic gaze, I was more looking at like people and, you know, I've, like having that horizontal, uh, sorry, horizontal gaze. Uh, yes. But then with the, the Wi-Fi, like I just turned my head towards uh, up, you know, towards the sky uh, in a vertical way. And um, I was like, wow, there's so many things happening um, on the rooftop or some things that are happening in relation with the sky that we never really talk about. And then when I just started with this, it became a kind of an obsession. Like every time someone was telling me a story about something happening in the, st- the sky or in relation with the sky, it really caught my attention. And then I, it just began to, uh, to roll and become a, a big topic. And um, also something else that happened more or less at the same time is that when I started to look up, look at the rooftop, I noticed that in Santiago de Cuba, there was a lot of people who would put cactus cactus in front of um, of their house on the roof, but in, in front of the house. And um, I, I had conducted research in Cuba for more than 15 years and never noticed that there was there were cactus on people's rooftop but then in 2015 it was like why wow there's so many people having cactus on their rooftop there must be a reason why and asking people that's when i started to understand and um that they were telling me that actually it's connected with um the belief uh religious beliefs and i can talk more about it later but uh, so it had it had a huge connection with religions, with household, with even family, um, the notion of protection, etc. So, um, a lot of stories came out of um, my interest to look at the sky as an ethnographic um, uh, territory, if you want. So that's how it started. Yeah, and how did you come to this idea of ethnofiction as a way to tell all of these stories? So ethnofiction comes from um, cinema for me, it, it, because I'm a visual anthropologist. I'm interested in films, um, and not, not just with film in films, but that's one of my interests. Um, and uh, in uh, in ethnographic film, there's the work of um, uh, of uh, Jean Rouge, who's a French uh, cinematographer and uh, anthropologist, who's work a lot um, on the west coast of uh, Africa. And he developed that technique, what he called, um, or the technique that became associated with his work is called ethnofiction. Um, and that technique is, um, he would ask the people um, he would work with, so the like uh, could be like at the time they were calling them like uh, research informants, but now we talk more about, uh, we refer to them as participants or collaborators. To, um, to perform a little bit their role or to perform um, who they were uh, in, in life. And they, he was making, he would make a film about that. So he would create a story with them, uh, would um, um, work with, with uh, those collaborators to act their own role in a film. So it was, uh, it became films based on reality, but um so based on, on, on kind of, yeah, based on reality, but also playing with fiction. So the people playing their own roles were playing in their own roles, but also playing with, with fiction. Um, so that's how that mix between ethnography and fiction um, really caught my attention. And I decided to do this, but um, not in cinema, but in, in writing. Um, so what I did is um, 
Um, for this book, I conducted uh, ethnographic um, fieldwork, which included interviews, observation, participant observation about the notion of the sky uh, and other topics, but that was one of them. And I use all of those interviews or what people were telling me about the sky or that I was interested in and invented stories. So those stories that I invented are based on ethnographic material, but they are the result of um, kind of, um, I would say, a manipulation or uh, almost invention yeah, of, of uh, stories that I made up. So it's not... Um, 100% fiction, but it's not 100% kind of uh, ethnographic um, material. So listening to you talk about these, it strikes me that that's also what the illustrations are doing, right? Because they're not photographs, so they're not kind of, you know, representations exactly of what happened, but they're renderings of the, the, the stories that you're telling. I don't know if that's what you intended, um, but I was really struck by them. I, th- I think they're very beautiful, and I, and I hope that our listeners go rushing to um, buy your book so they can read it and also see the illustrations. Yes, thank you. The, 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 illustration, the, the work was um, with uh, Jose Manuel, uh, who is uh, the artist uh, with whom I collaborated for this project. And I knew our, I already had collaborated with him in the past because we uh, had worked on animation uh, for a film. Uh, so I, I know him for the last maybe 10 years and I really liked his style um, and really liked the way that he um, painted the sky. So even before I, I had the idea of doing a book about the sky, I noticed that is the, the sky when he was painting or in his art in general, there was a lot of dots and a lot of... Um, um, I, because he works with the aquarelle, so um, um, uh, I don't know how to say aquarelle in English. Actually, it's uh, water watercolors. Um, so he, 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 he works a lot with watercolors and, and just leaves the drops on uh, his paintings uh, fall anywhere, uh, uh, and it creates uh, interesting patterns and interesting connections with different uh, with different shapes. So anyway, I was interested in that, and that's um, why I asked him if he would be interested in collaborating again on this book project, and um, he accepted. And it was very interesting working with him because um, we, I came up with the stories, as I just said, and then we were sitting together and we uh, worked on a, on a script, and he came up also with ideas of uh, how we could uh, put those stories into uh, images. Because I have to say that at the beginning, my my idea was to create a film about the sky, but I soon realized that it would be very hard and that a lot of the things that actually travel or circulate in the sky are invisible. So drawing really allowed me to, allowed us to um, try to imagine those mo- those things moving in, in the air, those things circulating in the sky that could not be seen or that could not be captured with a camera, but that could kind of um, become visible with drawing and with a pen. So that was the idea behind the drawing and why I decided to to work with him because he's a, he's a very talented uh, artist. And uh, maybe at the beginning too, I wanted to do more of a graphic story or a novel, you know, having... Um, having the drawings more present than the writing. But because of his style, um, I soon came to the conclusion that 
um, it would be harder to do this because it took him so much time. Every drawing is so, um, uh, as you say, like I invite the, the, the listeners to, to go see those drawings, but it's it, each line one at a time, you know, it's very long to do one drawing. So I was, there's no way that we, um, we do a graphic, uh, full graphic novel. So that's, that's why we decided to do more illustrated type of stories. Um, and that where the drawings would have their um, their importance, but that the text too would accompany those those drawings. Um, so yes, definitely the drawings um, um, helped um, create that fiction, but also uh, speak to the ethnographic material because a lot of the characters um, I, that he drew are real people you know like that are um are people that who talk to me about the sky or told me stories um were actually that's what i explained in the book they're part of my family almost everybody in the book um that my my husband is cuban and so his family lives in santiago and they became part of the book in many ways um so they are real people but the things that happen in those stories did not necessarily happen like that because that's part of the creating the narrative or the the story of the, um, the yeah the stories. So um, yeah. so yeah so so let's talk about those stories because they're really fascinating and I do think that you know I mean what's so interesting is that you do you do invent these characters but or you you base them on real characters but the there's always a kind of I I, I don't know how to describe it but there's there's a a, a truth. A, about Cuba today um, in each of the chapters and each of them draws out a different kind of truth. So the Wi-Fi, for instance, kind of the, the obvious thing is the digital scarcity and the way that people kind of search around for, for internet. But then um, you, you connect that also to the kinds of non Wi-Fi networks that support the, the Wi-Fi networks and really draw attention to those. And then also this idea of resolver, which is so prevalent um, beyond the focus of the state, right? And so it, it's this ama- this wonderful ethnography in that the, the state is not that present. Um, uh, and, and then you're making all of these other connections to the sky. Yes. Uh, um, I think that um, the, the sky is what the connects everything right but that i start from there but then there are so many things that are connected to uh, to the sky and that's the beauty of it because and in many ways i think you could do the same exercise with um with anything um i guess but me i did it with the sky so you start from the sky and then you um you come up with a character and then uh that's then you realize that, oh, it's connected with, yeah, the Wi-Fi antenna because the Wi-Fi antenna, the signals travel through the sky. And how does that connect with how people live on an everyday life basis? Um, and how do they use those, how people use those signals on an everyday life basis? Um, what are their challenges, their barriers, and also the ways that uh, they cope with, uh, as you mentioned, scarcity? But also with an infrastructure that um, is maybe not uh, is not re- reliable or that does not meet the um, the desires and the needs of the people. So um, you you obviously have to connect with um, you obviously have to make connections with other questions of um, uh, of not only politics but also of. Uh, of, uh, of yes, of desire, of um, of uh, even um, uh, 
trying to 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 cope with a uh, daily life that uh, that is not easy with poverty uh, etc so the sky allowed me to make connections with unexpected unexpected things and something else that i have to say too is that i'm each of the chapters i i, w- I was very interested in each of those topics so the wi-fi had, had already done uh, ethnographic field work on the topic i knew quite well what was going on at the time i had talked to the telecommunication company workers i talked to the illicit sellers of wi-fi connection in the park i talked to um, users of the internet you know i had a good idea of what was going on and then after I created the story. So the, I think that the first step was really to, to, um, um, to have a, a very good sense of what's going on. When I felt that I had a good sense of what was going on, then that's when I was working on the story. Um, but that was that first step was very important, and that's why it connects with real life or the truth. Yeah, as you as you mentioned. So so um, with the cactus. <laughs> um, you 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 make the point um, you make the argument that uh, it inhibits circulation as opposed to the Wi-Fi, which kind of promotes circulation, right? And you also tie it to the so fascinating story of house construction in Cuba and the acquisition of materials. So can you can you walk us through that story just a little bit? So and and um, it's interesting because the construction topic is becoming now an interest that uh, I, I want to develop more. Uh, m- more research about that topic because it is a fascinating uh, topic. When you go to Cuba, you notice that everybody is is um, renovating their house or trying to, or in or is in construction, uh, trying to find the materials. It's hard to imagine, but in Cuba, you don't have an hardware store like we we would have in North America, where you go, you buy your nails, your uh, all the equipment, the wood, and and it, everything you need to um, to do to renovate or to construct something. In Cuba, everything has to be found. A bit by bit, um, in different types of uh, networks and systems, sometimes uh, illicit, legal, illegal uh, type of net- networks, where you get um, the cement, the bags of cement uh, in one place, you get uh, uh, the the gravel in another place, the sand, and you know, like you try to to bring all that together to mix everything. So. It's um it's a big stress for many many Cubans uh, construction and you know it's actually what I, many people told me it's the biggest stress that Cubans have right now is related to their house to the housing situation and uh, and uh, to the renovation so it's a big concern for Cubans and um, and of course like the concept of home housing family it's um, it's very important for many of them, uh, so it, it's really it really speaks to them to their to their reality. So the the story of uh, chapter two is about uh, Mary Mary Elena who um, is um, trying to construct uh, a house or a bigger house because her house is too small, and she's in that kind of um, process of trying to acquiring bit by bit different uh, type of materials and tools. But uh, everything goes against her. So the weather destroys um, the a wall that she constructed. Uh, then she loses the, her bags of cement because the her, her um, living room is so damp that uh, the the bags uh, got uh, got wet, etc. So she everything plays against her. So she decides that um, she needs to 
uh, and uh, you know every time something happens to her she's praying for help she's uh, calling the saints because she believes in the power of the saints of uh, espiritismo santeria but she says like uh, she needs something very strong to protect her household um from um those disasters, what she calls uh, some, el, el mal de ojo in Cuba, that's how it's called, but we could maybe translate it in English as the devil, devil eye. Um, so she goes to get a cactus that has long spines. Um, so she goes in, in the countryside, she comes back with this and puts that, put that on a rooftop. And the idea is that w- what she thinks is that this cactus, the cactus will... Um, burst the eyes of envious people or people who are trying to um, make bad things happen to her and her family because she believes that for sure there's something happening. You know, there's someone who's trying to uh, make her stop her construction or, or, or goes against her. So the cactus is there to stop those um, bad people, envious people of... Uh, envying her or, or uh, making bad things happen to her. So this, that's when <laughs> that's, that's talking with her and other people that I realized like, wow, the cactus are really powerful tools for um, some Cubans who believe in their power as powerful as um, a Wi-Fi antenna. You know, it's a technology that Cuban, Cuban use for certain reasons, certain purposes and and um, people believe that it works as much as people believe in uh, Wi-Fi antenna works. So, um, and that's what I tried to do in the book is to put uh, different types of technologies, quote unquote, um, some some na- what we could say natural, some human uh, invented, um, some uh, related to uh, religious belief, all at the same level. So all as things that um, help circulate or prevent circulate some forms of signals or um, things in the sky. So that's that's the cactus story. I think it's better told in the book, though. <laughs> there's so much to say, as you can see. There's, there's a lot to say, and you do it so beautifully and succinctly. Um, it's really amazing. But I, I think about um, John Durham Peters a lot when I when I read your book and the idea of, of um, elemental media um, and and sort of these things that we don't really consider media, but they transmit all kinds of all kinds of information and and and, uh, and things all the time, right? John, John Duran Peters is my biggest influence uh, in in writing this book, and actually, I still remember ri- reading his book and being blown away by what I was actually uh, reading. You know, like. Uh, uh, what I was reading was that's exactly what I wanted to do. You know, it spoke so much to me when I read his book that um, when I started to work on this guy, it just came up naturally and is definitely the biggest influence of, of uh, this book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, and so that just, that leads us straight to the pigeons, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and the, and the story of Marlon and his pigeons and the pigeons as media, right. And, there were some things that I was really struck by in this chapter. One is how little we really know about these, these um, carrier pigeons, right. Who go and come back and how much they were used in, in Cuba, not just in Cuba, but in other places as well. But also 
um, you you work into the story really nicely. This idea of this these children, right? Like that Marlon is a child. I think he's twelve years old. Yes. And he goes, you know, he takes this train trip all day long, kind of like his pigeon. And, you know, he tells his mother he's going away on the train and he goes and then comes back. And um, I don't know if you sort of had that connection too, but, but, but the, the, the way that these, um, the children are also sort of circulating in, in Cuba. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it's funny that you mentioned this because when I wrote the, that chapter for the first time and I asked a friend to read it, um, her first comment was like, well, Alex, you have to, uh, um, you have, people will find it so weird, you know, that the child would take the train by himself and go in the two, 300 kilometers. In, and she's, she lives in, in the United States and she says in the United States, it's impossible. Like in Canada, of course, it's not, it would not be possible, but I've, When I wrote it, I, I was just like, this is how it is. And um, um, in Cuba, like there's not this fear of um, and, and travel is very difficult. It's uh, it's a big adventure, you know, to uh, to go in another city or uh, to take the uh, the transport a transportation to another place. It's never, never straightforward. There are always things happening um, The the the. Uh, the bus breaks or something uh, is not working well or the train takes double time. Uh, but even then, I think that um, it, it's, it will not be that um, surprising, you know, if, if this would happen. Um, maybe not that common that I wanted to put it in the book, but it's still, it's still more common. It's still, I think children are way more free to move. Um, even when we think about the neighborhood level, you know, like where kids are, uh, going from one house to another, as you say, circulation of the children, uh, from one house to another. And, um, were raised by, uh, you know, like the, this, um, this idea of like, uh, it takes a, a village to, to raise a kid. Well, in Cuba, that's for sure. That's what it is. And, um, that's what's happening. People are everywhere in the street. They, uh, eat, uh, wherever they are. They drink water in, in any family The you know, like it's, it's about this idea of, um, it's way more open, way more, um, fluid, um, as a way of, uh, Uh, exchanging, I would put it like that. So kids are are um, more part of uh, uh, normal daily life of going around and being loose a little bit in in the in the city, and that's the the beauty of it. When I go to Cuba, my son, eight, nine, ten years old, sometimes I don't see him for hours, you know, and that's I that's just normal. Like kids are from one place to another, they play, they, um, so it's another, it's a different way of looking at it. So yes, there is a definitely a different, um, way of thinking about children moving around. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was really struck by that, but maybe we can talk a little bit about pigeons. Are, are the pigeons, um, uh, I wasn't sure in the book actually, whether, um, it was very common for people to have pigeons or whether it's an unusual, Thing for people to eat them and to sort of care for them as much as a child did. Yeah, it, it is pretty common actually. There are many. If I just look at uh, the neighborhood uh, where um, Marlon, Marlon, so Marlon is is a real uh, character. He has a pigeon, so this is all true. So in his neighborhood, um, in the like I would say central Santiago de Cuba, 
there are a lot of uh, pigeon owners, uh, every maybe five or six houses, all males. I never met any woman doing that. And um, the pigeon owners I talked to, they don't, they didn't know any woman uh, doing that. So it's really a male thing, boys from all ages um, and also uh, who have different um, levels of passion for it. So some are just raising pigeons for fun. Others are very competitive. So different types of uh, engagement with the pigeon, but uh, a similar, I would say, love for those animals and also a recognition of um, their uh, capacity and their intelligence, uh, uh, mainly to orient themselves and to uh, come back home. So this idea of like the pigeon, that you release the pigeon somewhere and it will come back home. It has that instinct of flying back to um to where its own is so that was very um very strong for all the pigeon owners i i talked to and it might not be that common in every uh, neighborhood but i would say that in in popular neighborhoods um in santiago de cuba and i know it's the same in havana there are a lot of um it's very common to have a to have a pigeon uh, pigeon owners and association and uh, competition of uh, releasing pigeons. So that, that that that's what the story is about. It's a young boy who's not part of the the association of the um, Colombo Philo, so the pigeon owners, but who um, who likes to have pigeon and who's trying to raise. Uh, to train his pigeon to fly back home. So how do they do this? Is they release the pigeon progressively, uh, the farther and farther and farther, and then uh, in the hope that the pigeon will um, get that sense of, I would say, geolocalization type of sense of where its home is, and that the pigeon will be able to come back home, even if it's further and further. Uh, so he's this. He decides to take the train to release a pigeon very far, like at 200 kilometers, that's that's far for him um, to train a, a pigeon. Uh, but he releases the pigeon, and that's the story of how um, it came. It comes back to the home, which we don't really know how. And uh, um, what's interesting about it is how pigeon owners think that the pigeons uh, can find its way home. And... and um, also, we, we've talked about the concept of truth before. And to for this book, I was not really interested in what is the truth, you know, how I, I was not interested in finding out how pigeons really come back home or how the cactus really works or if it really works and if it's just a belief or if it's reality. My, my interest was how people talk about it. What are the stories associated with those objects, animals, or beliefs? That was really my interest. So the pigeon like comes back home, but we don't know how. Like so, we can read scientific articles to kind of figure it out and trying to find answers. But what really interested me was how um, pigeon owners talked about it, and so that's what I tried to put in the in the story. Um, and then you move to the lottery and um, the way the numbers from the lottery come up across the ocean from the, from the, um, on the radio from Miami. Right. And that made me think of, um, you know, the kinds of stories that people might tell about that. And it seems to me that they might be about winning and not winning and the arbitrariness of it all. Right. Which is, which is kind of, um, 
resonant with the arbitrariness of ending up on one side of the of the divide or another, ending up in Cuba or in Miami in some way. Um, but then also continuing that 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 long continuous connection, which um, was you know strengthened through radio back in the you know early twentieth century. So. Um, yeah, the the how did you how did you come to the to the lottery as an idea to as a as a thing to talk about? Well, the lottery um be, well because that's what I love about the type of work that we're doing, the type of research that we're doing and uh, I'm sure that um this will resonate with uh, some of the people who listen to us right now, but when when you're in the in the field or doing research and you um find out or learn about something like the lottery in Cuba, uh, it, it again just blew, blows your mind and you're like, what, something like this exists, you know, because lottery is illegal in Cuba, but Cubans found a way to play lottery and they, a lot, they play a lot, a lot of Cubans play, but it's all on the ground, it's all um, illegal and the numbers that are picked up are uh are transmitted from from Miami, and those numbers travel everywhere uh, on the island, and it's all in organized, you know, like locally in different types of uh, uh, bank, what they call the bankers, uh, who have their own structure and um, people working for them to collect the money, etc. So the the structure itself is just um, impressive and amazing. Um, and because it because it's um, because it's not part of the state system, but it works so well, and it's just there, and it's almost invisible, but it's there, um, and it's huge. And you have all the um, I would say the um, the religious the uh, symbols that are associated with each of those numbers. So each of the numbers that are part of the uh, the lottery. So one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, up to, uh, I can't remember right now, I think it's 99. Each number has its own symbols. And then Cubans um, are very sensitive to uh, things that they might see, things that they might think about, dreams, uh, things that they might come across, anything that could reveal um, what will be the winning number of uh, the lottery. So they might dream about, a, like in the story about a horse, or they might, someone might tell them about um, um, uh, the good uh, uh, fish soup that they ate, and oh, a fish soup, you know, all of those symbols that Cubans will associate with numbers on an everyday life basis is very, very um, strong. And again, when you start paying attention to that, you, you find out how um, how important and how big it is, but how it can so easily escape your attention if you don't really uh, know what what Cubans are talking about. Because of course they all have a language to talk about it that it's not not really obvious. Um, so, but you were talking also about um, um, you know like being born in, in, on one side or another, like the winning numbers and losing, and. After I finished the book, I realized that a lot of the things that I talk about in the book are connected with the concept of luck. I talk a lot about luck, but in different ways, um, being lucky or um, even like, um, but how, how, how you can uh, facilitate luck, you know, how you can make things 
uh, easier for you? How can you be more lucky or luckier? So, um, and th the lottery chapter, it's really strong in that chapter. How can you be so be attentive to the symbols and the things that happen to you in life that will facilitate um, or that will make you a, a winner, basically, that, that you will win the lottery? And um, yeah, so I... I, I, this is just a, a fast, each chapter is kind of a, a fascinating discovery for me that I decided to dig a little bit more with, with my research. Yeah, you pull all kinds of things out. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the last chapter is um, all about the conga, right? And this kind of evocation of the city and people moving through the streets and the music also connecting people through, um, I guess, through the air, right, to continue with the, with the sky. Um, theme and so how uh, why did you end with the conga and and how does it kind of bring what does it bring together to 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 pull the story towards towards its conclusion so the conga for me brings the the sound element so the sonic aspect the so the sound traveling in the in the, the you know the vibrations basically um uh influencing the hair pressure and um Uh, making us uh, listeners or people who can hear. I thought that uh, I'm, so I'm a visual anthropologist, but I'm also very interested in sound. And um, up to chapter four, I, I, I thought that the book was really good, but then I was, um, or the ideas were very good. And, uh, but I thought that something was missing more in the, the sonic, the sonic aspect, you know, and I, I think that the conga really brings that because it's about circulation in the city, but it's also about um, um, about this this the sound that is so present uh, in Cuba that is everywhere. Um, that uh, and, and I wanted to convey that the 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 presence of sound all the time, everywhere you go. Um, that is way that is louder. You know this this idea that. Um, Uh, you can't really always, um, it, it, I mean, it's not the same relation with sound that let's say I have here in Victoria, BC. It's, it's another relation with, uh, with sound. And uh, when you travel to Cuba and you're not necessarily used to it, I think that um, it, it comes up. You know, you realize how sound is, is uh, differently um, expressed and how people relate with sound in a different way. So, The idea of the conga, which is a very important uh, form of uh, sound making or a form of uh, cultural expression in, in Santiago de Cuba, um, I wanted to uh, explore that uh, spontaneous form of uh, street uh, parade or street expression or no noise, you know, that people make in the street um, as a as a way to engage with the city, with the sounds that are made in the city, and also of um, of how um, sound is just something that that circulates all the time in uh, in Santiago. So that that's it's mainly because I, I thought the sound was missing, although sound was so important in that location. That's why I decided to end the, the book with uh, with the conga. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so I've taken up lots of your time, and I just have one more question for you, which is, um, I I'm wondering what you want readers to take away. I know that I took away 
um, many things, but um, but the, the one of the big picture things that I took away was that it's a, this book is a kind of sideways look at um, what people call the special period, right? Like there's a there's a lot of the literature on the special period, and I think that this really sort of moves beyond that in in distinct kinds of ways in the sense that it's really grounded in every day and there's a lot of activity that happens beyond the state or outside of the state or mm-hmm. beyond um, a lot of these kinds of things and and there's not this kind of um, sense of moving towards um, you know the end of a regime or anything like that or or, or it, it's just it's a really kind of very thick, um, and textured look at everyday life. And I don't know if that's what you wanted to, people to take away. That's what I took away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. That's one of the things we, as you know, like we talk about um, the fact that Cuba is in, is in, a, in a state of transition for so many years already. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And transition to what? Yes, I, I would agree. Of course, we are in, they are in, in the transition, but we don't know for what. Plus, it's a transition that lasts so long. Are we still talking about a transition? Um, so I wanted to, uh, as you say, move away from that. And I've engaged with politics in the past. So, you know, I, I felt I had done that. And also because when you talk to Cubans, they don't talk about transition. They don't talk about um, those type of questions that we are so interested in in finding or in, in researching. What they talk about is um, what I tried to uh, to put in the book, you know, when when I talked to them about cactus or pigeon or um, the conga, they had so many things to say. Uh, versus if I asked them about, do you think I would not ask them, do you think we are you are in tra- in a transition phase? I would never ask that. But you see what I mean when it's it's just like when you talk to them about their passion or what they're interested in. There's so much that they talk about, and they rarely, like, never talk about. Uh, transition or the state, you know, like the big state. It's um, it's not something that comes up. I I don't think ever in in a in a conversation uh, naturally. Uh, so um, so that's one thing. But all, I also wanted to um, to bring the uh, even almost the the poet the poetic of um, of of course the sky, but also of uh, the stories. Um, there's also uh, my interest to explore new forms, uh, new methodologies um, in uh, in social science and anthropology, um, looking at more like um, concept like imagination, uh, but also using drawings and collaboration. Um, so, like outside of Cuba, you know, I also had interest in. Um, thinking about new ways of doing research and new ways of thinking about um, um, interpreting um, stories that people tell me about certain things. And, um, and of course, like uh, about, uh, about Cuba is, uh, is to, to get to know um, because, because it's so focused on different objects. That was a very, interesting way for me actually to work you know once I decided those five objects so wi-fi cactus pigeon lottery conga then um, it just went so well because like it the stories developed around those objects so those objects became our animals but they became the center of many many stories and many uh, connections um, so I, I found it was an amazing way to, um, to work and a, a new way for me to find out about things that I had not thought about before, uh, 
while conducting fieldwork in Cuba. So it opened new ways of looking at things or new ways of thinking about things that I didn't think about before. I don't know if it makes sense, but it's just um, it just uh, opened the way for a new perspective on things. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that readers will have the same experience. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Me too. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.